hello and welcome back to I've Never Seen. Um, I'm joined today again, as always, by Patrick. Hello. And guest for this week, uh, Callie. Hello. And I'm going to open this one straight away by uh, addressing the fact that I'm I'm very much not with it because we just recorded the Christmas special, uh, which will be coming out after the first half of this and before the second half. And it was an experience. Yeah, if you want to, if you want to know what has happened to our brains, you should listen to that. Definitely, definitely give the Christmas special a go. Um, yeah, um, but we're going to crack on regardless. Patrick might be taking the lead a bit more than usual in this episode, but we're going to go through season three of the Next Generation. Does that um, mean? Does that mean I get a bonus? You know, to my uh, to my to my my ample salary. I was gonna say you'll you get an extra fifty percent of the zero I'm currently paying. <laughs> yes, you get like a, a fruit basket or <laughs> some, some yeah, donuts or something. Like an, an e postcard. <laughs> <laughs> some flowers with a sympathy with a sympathy note. Uh, sympathy note. <laughs> That's oh. correct. <laughs> well, all right. So you know, I'll keep things on track. It looks like. Uh, this episode will take us to the high ground in season three, and then we'll do the next episode. We'll do the rest of it. That's so, so I, yeah, if you, if you want to take us off with evolution, the first episode. Sure. Well, and almost we could like do sort of a little overview, um, or I could just I'll I'll start talking about what the third season means to me because you know that's I'm yeah, important. Uh, so third season of Next Generation, um, just to put it in kind of a personal uh, and a historical context. So um, you know the first season is rough. You know there's a lot we love there, but it's rough. Um, the second season really started, it had some flashes of greatness, but, um, there were some, you know, there was still, uh, an extended guest appearance by Joe Piscopo, um, an extended <laughs> Irish farmer comedy episode and an honest to God clip show. Uh, so historically speaking, uh, essentially the writer's room was on its third or fourth root canal and, uh, they finally got, uh, this fellow Michael Piller, uh, coming in from some drama or another. And he really, in a lot of ways created the framework that, uh, took uh, star Trek uh, from here through deep space nine, etc. Um, and I've always had a lot of respect for that. Um, he's also the one who likes baseball. So when we meet Commander Cisco later, that'll make a lot more sense. Uh, yeah. This is also when they're like, Gene Roddenberry, we love you. Thank you for Star Trek. Please go away. Yeah, he had, he contributed some important story points this season. But yeah, his yeah. his his health was was obviously on the wane. And uh, if you uh, check out, uh, I've recommended this a couple of times, but the uh, the documentary Chaos on the Bridge. Fantastic. Uh, not to say it's objective, but it'll give you an idea of just what the power struggle was like at the time. But basically, the, the documentary really ends here where we're starting today because this is when they figured it out. And, you know, they got uniforms that stopped wrecking everyone's back. Um, you know, everybody had a really clearly defined role in the cast. We had Dr. Crusher back. Um, Yay. It just, like... Let me let me let me put it this way. Um, I experienced much of this show through rerun packages, and uh, sometimes they would base they would 
you know, drop out or not play for a long time, season one and two entirely. So like, this is, this is the season where no one can argue, okay, it looks like TNG now. It feels like TNG now. And uh, I think it, the fact that it's kind of in the middle is important as well, because um, as TNG continues, I think they start to rely on, stories that are not as uh, compelling like there's a lot more sort of anomaly of the week and so this gets in a really real a real sweet spot for me personally where the drama is always front and center like the you know there there's a conflict between the enterprise and another character that doesn't mean a violent conflict but it means that there's a real um, dramatic opportunity to be had so the qualities there and but also that sort of like je ne sais quoi that uh, was was a little bit less consistent as we went on so even as a kid, I sort of had a subconscious idea that like, oh, this was the sweet spot of the series for me. Yeah, we'll get into it in the next episode, I'm sure. But actually, uh, the end of season three was my entry point into Next Gen. And it, it was really the world's entry point into Next Gen yeah. because that was that was when it stopped being discussed as that weird spinoff of Star Trek and became a force in its own right. Yep. And if you lived through the mid to late 90s when Star Trek was really at its peak of cultural influence, it's because of that show. But again, yep. we have to wait till next recording for that. Which, to be fair, is very in the spirit of it, given that it, you have to wait until next season to find the conclusion. <laughs> yeah, it's dro- dropping that cliffhanger in, in, in perfect Star Trek style. <laughs> And I've yeah, made well, a point of not watching part two yet because I wanted to go into this podcast not having seen the conclusion. Well, of course, we say, well, we say Star Trek style, but it wasn't any style back then. That's true. That's true. And, and the only the only thing people could really compare it to was uh, Dallas did uh, Who Shot JR, which I mostly only know about because The Simpsons parodied it years later with Who Shot Mr. Burns. But even that, you know, Dallas, as I understand it, was kind of like a primetime soap opera. And Mm -hmm. so the whole idea of building this cliffhanger into a pretty episodic sci-fi action series, this was like the this is like the Game of Thrones water cooler talk of the town. And before, you know, social media, when it was like easy for before it was super easy for people to get together and discuss this kind of thing. And so it was like everybody was just hanging mm-hmm. yeah but yeah and it was it was an experimental yep. show even in how it was presented because it was all it was only in syndication not in the network so the success that it had was really in spite of its format which just makes the writing here even stronger yeah we'll we'll, we'll get to sort of we'll discuss um that episode a bit more in part two but if we sort of start with with the beginning of season three um and it's sort of we've mentioned a couple of times on this podcast that i don't have the best memories and it took me longer than usual to get through series three because of some health issues so patrick's gonna give us some synopses as we go through just so i can remember which episode is which because the titles don't really give it away very much so if you wanted to start with with evolution and we'll work from there sure sure So Evolution, uh, the one where Dr. Kelso visits the Enterprise. Thank Um, you. 
<laughs> but I think uh, a really important uh, status quo setter where they're saying this is season three, we're here, get used to it. Um, they bring in Dr. Crusher again, Gates McFadden, and reestablish her relationship with Wesley, who had grown a lot in the previous season, uh, which makes it kind of ironic in that it's one of those plots where Wesley kind of wrecks everything because he he literally falls asleep during a science project and then his nanites almost destroy the ship. But it's done in, you know, in this sort of naturalistic way where you're, you're empathizing with him um, because it corresponds with a personal upheaval in his life as well in this potential mentor figure. And then let's not forget that nanotechnology was not a buzzword yet. Um, this was really very much an example of next generation being very literate in uh, in real world concepts that could potentially be used for science fiction. I just I love that uh, it's. It, this episode really illustrates the dichotomy of like Wesley Crusher is probably the smartest human alive, but he is also a child. <laughs> it's like he does kind of yeah. wreck everything, but the, uh, the, the conversation uh, between him and Guinan, he's like, I always get an A. <laughs> <laughs> I know. <laughs> I know. Is, uh, is, is cursing a lot on the show? I can, I can. Oh continue. yeah. Absolutely. Okay. Habitually. Uh, yes. Okay. All right. All right. <laughs> it's, I know who the fuck I am. <laughs> <laughs> it was like if you know if, if the show was on paramount plus and they were allowed to drop f-bombs i feel like that would have been the line maybe <laughs> i think that does that does touch on something that i noticed in particularly in season three with because i i seasons one and two i did not like wesley at all i he he was very much sort of the, the can do no wrong sort of weirdly godlike character who always save the day somehow despite being a fucking child season three they really managed to elevate like keep him as incredibly smart and incredibly like he's still a really important character but he's he feels more human it's he's not it's the wesley sweet spot because he's you know, the character is now 17 years old. I don't know if that was Will Wheaton's exact age or not. Um, in episodes that are not Wesley centered, he's just treated as the officer who flies the ship, which is like, thank you. Um, right. <laughs> you know, every so often it's important to the story to have a character comment on how he's kind of an unorthodox person on the bridge, like the, you know, like hollow pursuits with Barkley, but most of the time he's just treated as a professional. And that was almost the best thing that could have happened for his character. Um, and I, you know, I've talked about season three being the sweet spot for TNG. It's absolutely the sweet spot for Wesley because season two, they really laid this groundwork. Like he's the acting ensign. He flies the ship where he's learning how to command missions of his own. And season three, he really feels like a full member of the crew and yeah. season four, we'll talk about when we get there. <laughs> yeah and i mean i mean obviously we'll, we'll get to this again in, in the second part but that sort of feeling of him being part of the crew does culminate in becoming a full part of the crew at the end of the season so yeah getting his nice little payoff horrible half sweater uniform replaced 
<laughs> I like Wesley's sweaters. I'm just, I, just I. I will, well, no, I will okay. go to the mat defending Wesley's sweaters and his uniform. Okay, you know what, though? You know what I'm going to say is that in season two, he had the best uniform on the bridge, and in season three, it's the worst uniform on the bridge. <laughs> All right. I that. That, that's fine. I just say, I don't know if either of you saw, but I tweeted recently a uh, picture, a behind the scenes picture when they were still coming up with uh, Wesley's costume. And I'm mad that they robbed us of that because he's got full, like, cuffs on his sleeves and everything. He looks incredible. Oh, wow. Um, no, I hadn't seen that. Uh, but I, no, I, 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 I liked his sweaters. <laughs> All right, um, so... Uh... So that this doesn't become the sweater podcast, which probably would get uh, my wife to listen more often. But uh, <laughs> the Ensigns of Command is the next episode, which is somehow not about a uh, Lower Decks rebellion. Uh, which really, I, it would be anyway. <laughs> I genuinely thought that was what this was. Yeah, which is uh, kind of an... So this this idea of, of border disputes and Federation colonies uh, kind of comes up again and again. I don't know if it was reflecting kind of the pre-post-Cold War tensions of the time, but it's a major theme continuing through um, where the idea that we're the human colony that was not expected to survive ends up being accidental squatters in the pathway of this advanced and kind of disrespectful alien civilization. Um, and so I really like the culture clash where the Shelliac, you know, think humans are kind of like the worms inside of the dirt to, uh, to quote DBZ abridged. Um, but you know, they have to deal with us because it's captain Picard and the enterprise and we're awesome. Um, and because of Technobabble, they have to send data to evacuate these colonists. And it's exactly the hardest challenge you can give to data because he's got to be charismatic. Um, and, you know, he argues with the mayor and kind of sort of falls in love and gets to do kind of a Rambo thing at the end where he... Uh, convinces them that uh, if they can't stand up to his little android self, they can't stand up to these uh, Shelliac. And meanwhile, Captain Picard hysterically delays the Shelliac with legal mumbo jumbo and scene. Yeah, I this is an intensely relatable episode for me because I uh, I'm just now figuring out that like I'm probably autistic. And the reason why it's taken me so long, I think, is because I've gotten so good at acting like I'm not and like navigating a world that like communicates and operates differently than I do. And I just thought that that was like a normal thing. Mm -hmm. But I do remember as a kid, just like really not understanding the way things worked in the world around me and really like having problems and trying to figure that out. And the, the journey that data goes on, like figuring, like, how the hell do I talk to these people? <laughs> um, that is all just so intensely relatable to me. And I love uh, his, uh, his friend, I forget her name, the, the scientist that actually won wants to uh yeah wants to listen to him i, I love her um that's just like every every uh neurodivergent person hopefully has a neurotypical <laughs> friend like that that is like no 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 i i get you and i'm gonna i'm gonna help you uh i'm gonna i'm, I'm gonna be your uh your translator <laughs> yeah no and i mean i because uh, i'm also autistic and i think data as a character is quite relatable a lot of the time yeah 
I, I will say his actions towards the end of this episode do begin to border on just being a terrorist. Right. Like he is just he is just blowing shit up. Yeah, but they've been really annoying. <laughs> oh, that's fine, man. But also I just feel like like I don't know what else. I don't know what else was the thing to do, right? Because like if he hadn't done oh, that, like I mean they certainly would have died. Right? All of them would have died. And it's funny. And so like yeah, it's a it's, it's, it's funny a thing versus um, thing. Obviously, I've not seen it, but from what I'm aware, Deep Space Nine does this a lot more. But this sort of aspect of Star Trek where it's not black and white. Yes. It's not good, it's not good versus bad. It, sometimes you have to do the not necessarily morally correct thing. Right. Well, Michael Piller was not the showrunner yet for this first few episodes, like these first five or six, but he was working on the show and he does create Deep Space Nine. And you really That'll see those awesome. seeds. This is also the one season that uh, Ira Stephen Bear worked on, and he was the showrunner of Deep Space Nine for its last five seasons, so most of its run. And, you know, I really like Deep Space Nine. I really like season three. that makes a lot of sense so next is the survivors and um my friend who is possibly the only person on earth as into star trek as i am that i know no offense to anyone listening um he made a twitter poll about what's the the single episode that you would introduce people to each series with And I was trying to think a little bit outside the box and really from something that's both typical and good and gets its hooks in you. And I came up with the survivors. So to quickly to quickly recap, um, the Enterprise comes to a destroyed colony where there is a single non-destroyed house with two uh, very conspicuously ordinary people living there. And they talk with these people and they don't seem to know anything that's going on. And then the attackers of the colony reappear, or so we think. And then things just get really funny and twisty and morally dark. And I just love it. I love one of my favorite Worf moments because I feel like throughout most of TNG, Worf exists as the character uh, to be uh, to be told no. Um, <laughs> but but I, I love how uh, you know when they're in the house, he's like, "Yeah, you know, it was kind of badass that you tried to hold us up with that phaser that didn't work." <laughs> I, yeah, admire I admire Gaul. Gaul. <laughs> yeah. You know, if I was going to take like my top 30 Worf moments, and there's a lot of them because he's in a lot of Star Trek and he's really good, like two of them might come from this episode. Ooh, what's the other I, one? Well, there's I admire Gaul and there's good tea, nice house. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I, and I remember that because, you know, I would have been, uh, I would have been, uh, two or three when this episode first came out. So definitely not on the first viewing, but like when I was four or five, a few years later, you know, saw this in reruns and that put my parents on the floor laughing. <laughs> it's, it's a very repeatable quote, as well, especially if you're watching it as a kid, I think. I also love in the beginning. So when they meet this couple, they're like standing in the yard, right? And, uh, you know, Riker walks up and he gets caught in that booby trap that like hangs him upside down. And I don't, I, I don't know the the like behind the scenes of this, but it's just like you ever done that thing where something happens and you feel like like 
you're just supposed to run over to this person, but you don't really know why or how you can help. <laughs> and when, when Jordy runs over to Commander Riker, when that happens, it just feels like, I don't know. <laughs> what, do you, what do you think you're going to do, man? It's kind of, re- it's kind of revenge for the last outpost. Because <laughs> then oh. Jordy was upside down and Riker right. ran over to him. <laughs> yeah, oh my I, gosh. I it's wish- just that well, that whole first scene though, like you you rewatch it and you think of the, the layers of deception and illusion that are going on there. So, like, oh, okay, he has the phaser, but the phaser doesn't work, but also possibly none of it exists at all on some level. Right. It just and Very like, good for the, for the story to work out the way that it does. I kind of understand why it happened this way, but this is also just another like Deanna Troy must suffer. Like, can we? Yeah, can we, can we I mean, at least out there, <laughs> at least they didn't just write her off the episode, which was still a problem. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I mean, there, there are a few episodes where she just she just not there. <laughs> yeah, and and it, and this is at least one of the times where it wasn't. Uh, a sort of like allegory for sexual assault, at least. Yes. Um, because that's a yeah. thing that happens to her I way mean, too much. I honestly thought it was, it was really like haunting and thought provoking how, you know, she's driven mad by the music and like, I have never been formally diagnosed with anything, but also when people talk about being neurotypical, I'm like, what? So I, <laughs> I you know, I was a very unusual uh, lad growing up and I, felt like I could empathize with that experience of getting a song stuck in your head and just having no way to get it out and it like hurting. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that felt very visceral to me. Um, you know, it also sort of set, it, it set the stage, you know, like this guy's not a cue. So like potentially he does have a physical weakness. Um, and and it also led to the resolution of the story because Picard couldn't just leave well enough alone. He had to help Troy. Right. Which is where, you know, where I said, like, I kind of get where they had to, like, it was kind of essential to the resolution of the story. Um, but yeah, I just, I, I'm, I'm not always the biggest fan of the, like the Deanna Troy must suffer trope just because it happens too much. Like I, I, each Many of the individual times that it happens, it makes sense, and I get it. I just wish it wasn't a thing so damn often. <laughs> yeah, we've, we've yeah. talked on this podcast a lot of times about how badly that character was served. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, we, we spoke at length about the episode The Child, <laughs> which yeah. is really just one of the main examples of what, what, why. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, she will get laid in a couple episodes here. So who who watches The Watchers? Um, Uh, One of my all-time favorites. The planet of Bronze Age Vulcans uh, who are being observed and there's a problem and the Enterprise uh, has to intervene and uh, the uh, father from Twin Peaks sees a card and, and thinks he's a god. And then that messes up their whole society because, you know, they're like, oh, logically, you know, they kind of get hit by Clark's third law. Logically, uh, there is a God. So, you know, let's start throwing people into volcanoes. (laughs) I mean, yeah, I I just want to jump in slightly because this has to be about the 50th time you've dropped the you've mentioned Twin Peaks. (laughs) You you recently rewatched it, right? Yes. 
that. Okay, I just want to, so that people don't think you're just like completely obsessed with it or something. It's not like well, it possibly, but only in but in pretty recent times. But okay, yeah. to be to be fair. That's what people know that guy from, and everyone knows that guy. Okay, I mean, I don't, because I've not seen Twin Peaks, but... Well, well, I have well, also not seen Twin Peaks and do not know that guy, but... Well, well, Ray, well he, Ray Wise, he's a great character actor. He's also one of the heavies in uh, RoboCop. He does a lot of uh, sitcom dads, particularly on Fresh Off the Boat. He's just, you know, you've seen him somewhere not... You've seen him somewhere not in pointed ears. Yeah, yeah, this is... And this episode is interesting to me because I got uh, I got my start in uh, activism and podcasting and stuff in the world of organized atheism. And I am not so much embedded in that world now, but like a lot of friends in that world love this episode because of the speech that Picard gives uh, where, you know, he basically says like the fact that they've left religion behind is an achievement. Um, and it's, it's a little more nuanced than that, but that's kind of essentially what he says. Um, yeah. and, uh, I, I don't know. I have, I have complicated feelings about that. Um, it's, uh, I, I don't always think that Star Trek has handled those sorts of things specifically in the best way. Uh, but it is, it is interesting. Uh, and I guess th- this is like one of the, uh, prime directive episodes where it's like, in this case, the prime directive is probably a good thing and we should not. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I don't always think that it is. Uh, that's that's <laughs> the thing that I would come back to in this episode. I, you know, I also have a history with and uh, complications with organized atheism. Uh, Ooh, we should talk more offline about that. I bet we both have stories. <laughs> eh, uh, kind of mostly on the sidelines, but um, <laughs> I, you know, I will say this episode and not, you know, also the third season is like 90% bangers in general. Like it's a good episode. This isn't a favorite episode of mine. And I think it is because it's tackling difficult subject material with, with, with lack of time and room for nuance, mm-hmm. but I'm glad that they had that perspective on American television in 1989 or 1990. Right. Uh, I think that's, that's risky. I think it's valuable. Um, I wish that the franchise had taken similar risks at a similar time with regards to uh, queerness, et cetera. Oh yeah. Um, (laughs) yeah. So I think, and I think it's, it is a positive example. And there's one or two others I can cite of uh, Gene Roddenberry's direct influence and there's certainly enough negative examples of that that I like to call out the positive ones. Right, right. Yeah, I just, I, I really like ultimately that, you know, Picard, Picard's solution to the problem is like, I am going to respect this person's intelligence enough to tell them the truth, even though like it's going to be hard, it's going to be difficult, it's going to change everything that they're about. But like, you know, given, given all of these options, I am going to trust in the like inherent goodwill and the inherent, um, understanding of this person. And I'm just going to do the hard work and have the hard conversation. Um, cause you know, I grew up without a dad. Captain Picard was my dad growing up. <laughs> and, and, and I, I think about that moment a lot where, He's just like, I'm going to, I'm going to take a leap of faith in this person and tell them the truth and expect that that is the right thing to do. And good things are going to come from that. 
as I get that. Um, yeah. Also, I, I will say it's it's not the fault of this episode. It's just sort of funny that the scene where he takes the native woman up to the Enterprise and shows her her planet from space is essentially repurposed at least twice more uh, directly with Picard and a woman from a planet uh, <laughs> seeing it for the first time. Right. <laughs> uh, also, and, you know... It, you know, English-speaking media, particularly American media, is obsessed with Jesus. But it was interesting that Picard essentially gets lightly crucified in the name of atheism. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, that is a thing yeah. that happened. <laughs> oh, <man>. <laughs> <laughs> All right, on to the bonding. Oh gosh! Oh, it's the it's the one where, uh, well, it's the one where the the little boy's mother's killed on the away team um, due to oh, yes. a lost okay. civilization. Like yeah, and then the the remnants or the technology of that lost civilization try to make amends, and hilarity ensues. Uh, you know, and. Uh, this honestly isn't an episode I go back and watch over and over either, but it's a very significant one for some in and out of universe reasons. Uh, the major one out of universe is it's the debut script of Ronald D. Moore, uh, who's and the debut skip script in general, not just of this show. Uh, he was discovered by Michael Piller, and if you look him up, his contributions to American genre television can't really be overstated the creation of the, he created the reimagined Battlestar Galactica. I think he created, or at least show ran for a while. Um, Outlander, um, just his name is everywhere. And of course, a major sculptor of TNG from this point forward in deep space nine. Um, it's so interesting to see him start with what would become one of his hallmarks, which is Klingon culture. Um, and also how, the episode is really conceived and, you know, more had a military background as sort of the anti red shirt episode where you beam down to a planet and someone you've never heard of is killed. And, you know, in the original series and in a lot of other Star Trek episodes, they would just move on from there. But no, that's what the entire episode is about. You know, this woman who we never see alive the main character of the episode is her child left behind. And the other main character of the episode is Worf dealing with his, his loss under his command. Yeah. And this is one of those things that I even like, there were so many things that I can look back on now and say like, that was a little ridiculous, but as a kid, I totally ate it up. I had no idea how ridiculous it was because I was like 10. Um, but even like the first time I saw this episode and I was really young, I was like, are we supposed to believe that everyone's sad about this person? Like we've never met her before ever, but we're supposed to believe that they're all very sad about her. I don't, I'm, I'm not with you there. See, that is interesting because I probably saw and like internalized this episode before I realized that the red shirt cliche was a thing. So in that respect, it was very successful. And, you know, I essentially believed that there are all these people who are getting knocked off left and right by the Borg or whoever. They're all getting mourned off screen. So it created this whole this whole world 
where you now believed this was happening. You don't have to show it in every episode now. Yeah. yeah I, I also, I, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Sorry. I was just, I, guess I can see both sides of that. I think it is kind of narratively off that it happens in this episode. And then it's just, we sort of just go back to people dying without it really having an effect. But I think it, it works narratively for the story they're trying to tell. And I think I really, I, I, I saw this episode, I think like a week after I, I lost a relative myself. So Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, I'm sorry. It, oh, well, yeah. I mean, yeah. Um, but it, it really sort of hit hit the mark for me because it, it it covered grief in a very understanding way. It wasn't like a lot of TV would just sort of go, "Oh, things will get better," and uh, okay, right, whatever. But like, especially with the way, not only uh, Jeremy, I think the kid was called something like that. Yeah, yeah, Jeremy Astor. Yep. Uh, Jeremy, but not not only with his grief, but with the way it relates it then back to Wesley's with his dad. Yes, and, like that that scene of Wesley getting quite angry at, at Picard is probably one of my favorite scenes from what I've seen so far in Star Trek. It's interesting yeah. because every time I I think about that episode, I think about the wharf plot, but it actually doesn't take up that much screen time and I forget about the Wesley plot and then it sneaks up on me and I'm just like, Oh, well, and this is also like one of the rare times where you get to see Captain Picard show genuine feeling when, you know, he like grabs Jeremy's hand and he's like on the starship enterprise, no one is alone. And I mean, just like tears, like almost every time I watch that episode, so I've seen it dozens of times by now. Um, and still every time I'm like, okay, like we, like we know him as like a stone cold hard ass because he's a starship captain and that's kind of how you're supposed to be. But like, he does actually care. Like he cares about the people in his ship and he cares about his responsibility. Um, and then, you know, the, the talk that he has with counselor Troy about how like, um, you know, all I have to do is deliver the bad news. <laughs> you know, uh, you know, this is where your job gets hard. Um, it's, yeah. uh, it's, it's great from that perspective. And just at, again, as someone who grew up without a dad and I, I mean, I, I had a stepdad, he was a piece of shit. We didn't get along. Um, and, and it wasn't because, I mean, it wasn't because anyone died. Like my dad just was a coward and ran off. <laughs> so my mom basically raised me alone. So like, there's not like that kind of trauma, like a parent died that I could relate to. Well, that's just, mourning too. Well, yeah, absolutely. But, but just the idea of, of understanding that there is, there is a loss and like trying to figure out what that means for navigating your life. Uh, that really resonated with me. And like, I can, I can kind of get past the, it's a little ridiculous that we're supposed to believe everyone's so sad about this officer we've never heard before. <laughs> um, I can kind of get past that to the rest of it. Um, I will also say that, uh, I don't know how knowledgeable any of you are about the, the, the Klingon speaking community. Um, I speak Klingon and one of the most hilariously bad Klingon translations in all of Star Trek is in this episode. Uh, when, uh, because, uh, legendarily the producers all throughout uh, next gen Voyager deep space nine and enterprise really truly did just did not give a shit about getting Klingon language. Correct. Um, and so they would go back and forth between like straight up making shit up 
or they would pick up a copy of the Klingon dictionary, look up the words and put it together like it was English. And none of that is correct. And so during the, the bonding ritual, Worf says, uh, uh, which is supposed to be mother, we honor you. Uh, but it's just, that that's just not, they, they literally took the words and put them together uh, with zero understanding of how the Klingon language works. And in the Klingon speaking community, we call that paramount whole. Uh, whole is the Klingon word for language. Um, and so the, the Klingon that's on screen there is paramount whole, paramount language. And that's like the thing that, the thing that we joke about the most is specifically that line because it's just so <laughs> obviously not correct. Okay. Do you talk uh, much about Do you talk much about that Frasier episode? Where, uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, because because if, if memory serves, that uh, the Klingon and that was properly translated, <laughs> which um, a lot of the Klingon in popular media that you hear is not. Uh, sure. There's the 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 Family Guy episode that had Klingon in it. Completely wrong. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's 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 a thing. We 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 have. Uh, we have problems. But with of that. course, Fraser would have those standards, which is somehow even funnier. Uh, <laughs> because he's a starship captain. <laughs> uh, yeah. So the one the one other thing I want to say from a historical perspective is so much of the third season feels like prototypes. And they introduce these ideas that, you know, they they trickle in a little shakily, but then they they keep flowing. And the idea of of repudiating the red shirt meme you know there are going to be you know ridiculous meaningless non-commented upon deaths but it started to percolate so you know in deep space nine there's a lot of war and there's a lot of death a lot of it was written by moore and he would often find ways to make that meaningful even when he had to introduce a one-shot character and kill them off um and i was recently made aware and i I joke about enterprise because i really you know i tried that show when it came out i didn't like it um but that's not to say that there's no good or meaningful stuff there and apparently they were very careful on that production no crew member of the enterprise is killed on or off screen until more than halfway through the show and so they let that that impact appropriately and i think and i think if you know the extent to which and in discovery they just had you know a quote unquote red shirt with a very that's treated in a very meaningful way. And we find out a lot about them um, and they really try to avert this person's death. And I feel like historically speaking, you got to go back to the bonding and understand why this has changed since the original series. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. absolutely. And so okay. the moral of the story is kids, if you want to say anything in Klingon, find a Klingon speaker, don't use the internet. It's wrong. <laughs> All the time. Universally wrong. And don't reference. And don't reference any Star Trek series except Discovery or the uh, the TOS movies, because that's all good Klingon, too. <laughs> okay, Booby Trap, which uh, I know Sam has opinions on. I, I'm, I'm sure I do. Again, I'm going to need to stop. It's the one where Jordy's and his hologram girlfriend saved the ship. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> this, is, this, is, this is the one that I refer to as the Incel Jordy show. <laughs> yeah. yeah which like i have mixed feelings about right because i think 
it is important to read what's in the show textually, uh, but I also think it's important to read context into it in, uh, you know, the idea that like, so Jordy has historically not always been the best with women, but he's not historically been a creep, right? Except for this episode where it kind of turns into that. And uh, LeVar Burton, I forget uh, who he was interviewing with, but I think he sort of rightly called that decision out as being a little racist to like the black guy on the show is the one who is like the creep. Um, and, And so like, again, it's on the show and it makes sense to, to read into it textually what's there. Uh, but I also think like discussion of that broader context is really important too. Um, so I think when I watched this episode, like, like you said, I saw, I saw Geordie very much as a creep in this episode, I think, and we'll touch on this a bit more later, but by the end of the series, Geordie is very much not the creep of the crew. Right. <laughs> I my my opinion on what probably went down is you know I've I've praised the the foundations for the writers room that are being laid here but they were all extremely young white men and blind spots occur right um, and yeah. I also think someone decided after the Dauphin last season you know hey you know what. Will Wheaton's actually kind of cute and we're not going to do a bunch of dunking on him anymore. Like with his, him having his first girlfriend and his first kiss or whatever. Um, But that let me in. Someone had to be holding the bag. Someone had to be the loser. And it's almost overnight. It seems like that's Jordy to the extent that, and we'll get there that Wesley makes fun of Jordy for not having a date in the episode. Sarek. Right. Yes. (laughs) And, you know, not only are, is there a major discussion to be had in terms of blackness, but I think it shows a certain disrespect to short kings everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> I will say, though, I love, for the most part, like this episode is classic Star Trek problem solving. And it's one of the things that I love so much about it. It's just like a bunch of smart people getting together to figure out problems and uh, the, you know, there are lots of mechanisms for creating tension in a story that, you know, sometimes they work and sometimes they don't. Uh, but I feel like this was just the perfect setup to ratchet the tension up with like, you know, the radiation, the shields are going to go down in X number of minutes and we only have this much time to figure stuff out and all of that. Like, there's just so much about that that works and is so like classically everything I love about Star Trek here. Um also love uh, the gentle ribbing about ships and bottles. Uh, <laughs> That's a great scene. Chief O'Brien, you kiss ass. Love that. <laughs> well, and, and okay, so, so what you say, I really see that, what you say about the structure, it almost being like a prototypical, archetypical Star Trek. The structure is really good. And then setting aside all the Leah Brahms stuff, I wish almost every line of dialogue in the last three acts so the second half of the episode had been rewritten okay like everything they're doing and and all the visuals all of that makes sense but just out of nowhere we get this incredibly dated stuff like contagion level stuff like are we really going to trust a computer with the ship (laughs) and and just it mm. yeah (laughs) 
just uh, and I love and like I said, I love that exchange at the beginning, and I love the stuff with the Promillion Captain. But it feels like they just ran out of time in drafts all of a sudden when you get toward the end. Yeah, and like, why did Captain Picard decide that he was going to fly the ship at that point? Like. <laughs> At the time when it is the most crucial that accurate piloting happen, you are not the I, person who drives the ship. I'm, the they often. do they they do lay some groundwork for this. I think in in theory they say he has the best piloting record of anyone on the ship, but it is very much an informed characteristic. And like for God's sake, have data do it. Right, right. <laughs> this is something that I pointed out in when I was doing the live tweeting. Like he might be the best pilot in Starfleet, but he hasn't piloted a ship for years. Right. Right. He's the captain. <laughs> and because he's uh, he says specifically, he's like, you've done your job. Now I must do mine. Like your job is to give the orders. Your job is not to fly the ship. In fact, yeah. well, um, you know, sometimes and we'll, we'll see this again in Captain's Holiday. Sometimes they had to throw Patrick Stewart a bone. That's true. And, that's and, true. and, and you know, when we get there, Star Trek Insurrection is throw Stewart a bone of the movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which I. Uh, not the most popular opinion, but I love that movie. Um, I, I love it too, but it's it's a very informed, conditional kind of love. Right, right, right. Uh, I do love, though, like at the end, you know, like obviously he's pulled off this amazingly badass feat of piloting, you know, like slingshotting the ship around the around the asteroid and stuff. And of course, like any normal person would be like, fuck yeah, we did the fucking <laughs> thing, you know, just cheered or whatever. And he's just like, gets up and like well cons yours again no big deal <laughs> stone cold badass move uh which i love i uh, do yeah i think stuart is is an expert at knowing when to when to emote and when not to yes uh, again that's something that comes up particularly towards the end of the series um with the with the ferengi episode but um like he's he, he knows knows exactly when to be that cold character and, and when to just throw everything on the wall. A, a poker metaphor seems appropriate with this show, but he's their continual ace in the hole. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I mean, just like as a captain, that's a thing that makes sense to do, right? Like you pull off the most badass thing in the world and you act like it's like, I just ate lunch. This is not a big deal, right? Because mm -hmm. that's like how you that's like kind of how you're supposed to act a little bit as a captain. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, Picard is much more model. If he's modeled on anyone from the original series, he's much more modeled on Spock than Kirk. And that's a really fascinating. There's probably an academic essay or three about how that relates to the unexpected runaway popularity of Spock as opposed to Kirk back in 66. Yeah. 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 <laughs> All right, so yeah, we haven't really talked about much about what happens other than Jordy is a creep. So I did want to just for the record. So he's trying to solve the problem and he creates a he accesses the records of one of the ship's obscure unknown propulsion engineers um, and, uh, you know, gets wants to improve the workstation. So he wants the computer to talk to him and the computer for some reason synthesizes her, her whole body. And then she's like, he's like, huh, she's a hottie. You know, having her in visual range improves my morale to quote, <laughs> Matt, to quote, 
to quote Mass Effect 3. And he develops this parasocial relationship with this, you know, with the computer, essentially, in the image of this real person who very much does not know Geordi or any of this. And this will get mentioned again this season and next season and have consequences. Um, but it's, you know, it, it is a, a pivot point uh, for some aspects of Geordi. I'm with you every day, Jordy. Oh, God. Oh. <laughs> like I said. <laughs> it's, okay. Can we can we move on to the enemy, which is a good Jordy episode? Yeah, uh, I will just say that Susan Gibney deserves better. She's she's legitimately very good in, in oh, this yeah. role and uh, and is uh, Captain Benteen in DS9. She is very good and she deserved much better than that. Oh, I forgot she was Benteen too. Yeah, that's that's badass. Okay. Jordy with Jordy with the starship captains, man. All right. The, the enemy. Uh, so there's a generically inhospitable planet, which is the generically close to the Romulan and Federation borders. And the enterprise shows up because the Romulans are doing spy shit incompetently, which is the only reason why the enterprise would show up. Uh, but they retrieve an injured Romulan from the surface, but Jordy gets left behind because of stuff. And then there's another Romulan on the surface and Jordy and the Romulan have to work together to save the day, which turns out to be the thing that averts uh, mutual assured destruction between Picard and the show's best character, Commander Tomalock. <laughs> <laughs> I, had, I, had a, I had a feeling you were going to say something like that about Tomalock. No, he, he, he is great. Um, but also, I do feel like this was just a, a dry run for his later appearance, which is superior. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Um, I mean, this is just, you know, when I go back and say the third season is really good, I mean, you can basically pick almost every episode. We'll get to a matter of perspective. But you can pick almost any episode, and it's a good action-adventure story. And, like, I will dunk all over Booby Trap, but, like, it's a basically solid story and the enemy is a basically solid story um just most of it is pretty predictable um you know the the things that really stand out to me um are unfortunately none of lavar burton's stuff which is a shame because he's very much the star of that episode um but it's the wharf subplot which takes the opportunity of being a B plot and of being about Worf and the Romulans to go someplace much darker, um, but also much more informed ethically than the show would normally allow itself to go. Mm -hmm. um, so very much appreciating that. And then the other thing to comment on, if not appreciate is how Picard literally turns into the camera at the end of this episode and talks as if he's talking to the president of the United States and the premier of the Soviet Union. Brinksmanship is a dangerous game, <laughs> which just and, and I keep coming back to that historical perspective. But but, you know, you the next generation is a product of the Cold War as much as Watchmen is in its own way. And especially every time they feature the Romulans in this period of the show, it's very, it's very clear. Yeah, I see that. Yeah, and I do. I do think it's. I don't know if if they invented this aspect of Romulan culture specifically uh, because of 
Jory and him being blind, but like not the only time in the series we hear somebody basically be like, oh yeah, we would have killed you because you were blind. And by the end of the episode, it's like, oh yeah, turns out like you would have done that and you would have died because of it, because I had the solution to your problem. And, you know, it's, I, uh, I, I'm not the most informed person on, you know, disability activism stuff, but I do think there's, there's something, there's probably an academic to, to, to go back to that. There's probably some sort of thesis that someone could write on specifically the way that uh, Jordy's disability is used in ways like that to advance uh, plot points. Yes. Yes. Really interesting. Um, so this is a slightly obscure piece of trivia, but um, Jordy LaForge is actually named after George LaForge, yeah. who was a, disabled Star Trek fan who passed away before Next Generation aired and Gene Roddenberry made his acquaintance. Um, so there's that. Um, there's also the fact that, I don't know, in the United States, with our history, you can't really go wrong with putting on national TV eugenics is bad. And they'd been doing it from the start with with Khan and the eugenics wars, actually using the term. <laughs> back when it was probably less taboo than it actually should be. Um, now people try and talk about eugenics without saying eugenics. I was going to say, yeah, when you talk about eugenics without using the word, uh, uh, distressingly popular among some, yeah. among some yes. segments. And so it's, I, I wouldn't say it's a consistent or universal part of Romulan culture, which has been rather correctly and uh, diversified in more recent projects. But you do... It fits in with the kind of isolationist, hyper paranoid culture of specifically the Romulan military, right. who is almost every Romulan we interact with for the 90s period of the show. I do love uh, Jordy's snarkiness toward him at the beginning. Just like, <laughs> oh my God, yes. Commodore. Like, I'm not a Commodore. <laughs> All right, Commodore. Understood, Commodore. Fucking <laughs> asshole. <laughs> no, that's great. And it, and it really speaks to the, the, I do think there was an effort in season one to play everyone a little bit green. And so it's, it was really future proofing and forward thinking because as the show advances and the actors grow into their characters, the characters grow into their roles. And like Jordy is the chief engineer of the flagship of the Federation. And he can't do anything if this Romulan foot soldier wants to disintegrate him. And he just doesn't care. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's excellent characterization, both of Jordy and of the United Federation of Planets in particular. Because they, you know, they are supposed to be better than us, like human, but generally in an, in an admirable, aspirational way. Well, right. And I mean, there's the you know, the sort of trope of like, you know, engineers are nerds, right? Like you can solve complex technical problems. Uh, but, you know, especially before, like in social situations, maybe a little awkward, maybe don't know what to do, maybe not the most courageous, uh, adventurous type. Um, but he is just straight up all of that in this episode, talking shit to the Romulan. Uh, and that's just, yeah, it's, it's wonderful. I, I wish that side of him came out more throughout the series. Well, and imagine if you reversed Jordy and Worf's positions in this episode, how yeah. each each Romulan would have gotten so much more what they expected. Right. Yeah. 
Well, and Worf and that Romulan would have both certainly died. Absolutely, without question. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, And, you know, it would be remiss to move on without pointing out, you know, particularly considering the never ending debate about abortion and privacy and bodily autonomy um, that honestly, I didn't understand about this episode for a long time because I had to, you know, as a cis man, um, get to grips with that kind of in a different way, um, through conversations with different people in my life. Um, you know, I kind of thought Worf was in the wrong for refusing to essentially, and the, the bio babble is especially bad in this episode, but metaphorically, you know, it's, he's being asked to donate an organ to an enemy. Um, and I thought he was wrong for refusing, but in fact, when you come to it as an adult and being a little bit more informed about what's probably on these people's minds in America at the time, what they're saying is even if it's ugly and we don't like it, bodily autonomy is sacrosanct. And, you know, even though it would have been too late anyway, Captain Picard did not order Worf to undergo the procedure. No, I think, I think he was right in not being, uh, they, they handled that correctly and that he was not forced to do it. He is still an asshole for not doing it. Yeah. I was, <laughs> was going to say the same thing. Because like, uh, it, it was literally just like a blood transfusion basically was the, was the, the gist of what they wanted from him. Uh, it was, you know, he wasn't being asked to give up anything that would, uh, you know, hurt his health or hurt him or anything like that. Um, I, I, I do think it was correct for him not to be forced to. Uh, I, I don't think that he should have been forced to by by law or by the captain or by anyone. Uh, but he was also a fucking asshole for, <laughs> for well, doing what, it. What is interesting to me is that if Picard had ordered him to go and do it, he would have gone and done it and he wouldn't have gone to court like Data. He would have just accepted, you know, this is my role in the hierarchy. But right. he also was clear that you are going to have to order me to do this because, you know, I am a Klingon and these are these things that have happened to me. And, you know, it's every so often they have to remind us that Worf is not a tame lion uh, to paraphrase C.S. Lewis. And I think that's absolutely correct for the show. And, you know, obviously, if you can save someone's life with a blood transfusion, you should do it. And you're an ass if you don't. But Worf's perspective on that is different from our perspective. And I appreciate that from a storytelling point of view. It's, I really loved the conversation between him and Riker, where yes. Riker is like, yes. okay, do you blame every Romulan for that? Always? Forever? For all time? Uh, it was like, and I, I do think it's a, it's a little weird the way that Riker characterized uh, the, you know, the conflict between the Federation and the Klingons. Like, the hurt and the blame. Klingons were not feeling hurt and blame, I promise <laughs> you. That's not how Klingons work. Um, but, like, I, I, I get the gist of where he was going with that. Um, and I, it's I something that know. they'll revisit with Worf. Sorry, uh, I cut yeah. you off. But, but like, this is not over for Worf yeah. and his journey with regards to the Romulans. Yeah, which is, I, I don't know. I have, <laughs> I have complicated and maybe not the most popular opinions on Worf. But as a Klingon fan, I'm actually not that big of a Worf fan. That almost makes sense to me because he's a very unusual Klingon. And I think that's very deliberate. Yeah. (laughs) 
Anyway, I, th- I think that's good for the enemy. Uh, yeah. Well, next is the price where uh, Marina Sirtis gets laid and we uh, establish the alpha, beta, gamma, delta quadrants. Uh, and yeah. <laughs> it's a good episode, but that's what happens in the episode, full stop. And we learn how uh, the Prime Directive just doesn't exist in some Star Trek episodes. Uh, where, yeah. Yeah. Uh, the, cool. Yeah. The, the, bar, the Barzans, not only that, they say they don't have interstellar travel at all, let alone warp. I do uh, think, but- I do think they, they make a distinction between like, choosing not to have warp travel and can't have warp travel uh, because, you know, technically this is a spoiler for a future production, but it's not a spoiler because it's in the past, but Barzans have actually been in Starfleet for over a hundred years. So they very much are approaching them as a foreign power, um, which I think is not wrong given the context. Yeah, it's just interesting. I mean, I'm I'm okay with with squaring like things that were obviously just like not quite thought through. Um, but it's like you don't have interstellar travel, yet somehow you discovered a wormhole and you know how valuable the worm like it just that that setup was a little silly, I think. Yeah, I think no, I mean no, I actually you know, I'm gonna disagree. I mean, I like the idea that there are people who who have a subspace cell phone, right? So like, you know, <laughs> leave, you leave, leave, leave us alone until okay, this is something that we can't handle ourselves, you know. So hey, come on and help us, Federation. Like but I think so- that makes sense from a world building perspective because you do have people like the Ferengi who are just scattering technology hither and yon. And when the Federation gets there, like if they, if they know how subspace communication works, it's like, well, what are you going to do? They, you know, they know about us. This isn't a freaking men in black situation. They just don't want to build warp drive themselves. Sorry. Yeah, it it, it does. I was going to say basically the same thing. It does raise this sort of question of, well, if a species develops enough like long-range satellite technology and stuff to discover the federation before developing warp drive what what do you do in that situation you can't stop them from discovering you yeah it's uh again a a thing that i think is just not super well thought through uh and uh that that wouldn't well that wouldn't be unusual yeah exactly (laughs) just the prime directives tagline should just be not very well thought through. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so probably my highlight from this show, and again, it's it's not a bad show. It's not plot heavy, but that's fine. Um, but what I what I take away from it is there's a great Frangie comedy scene, of course, right at the start about who's bringing the chairs. Right. Um, but then the conversation between Riker and Devoni Devioni Rawl, where he's trying to taunt Riker with like, you know, I fucked your girlfriend and it just completely bounces off Riker in a way. I think that possibly was Roddenberry influenced either directly or indirectly, but also feels very modern in the post post sexual revolution or wherever we're at. And I just love how Riker's not, that guy 
And like, we kind of joke about Riker, you know, Riker Googling, you know, he's how he comes off as just a little bit of a simpleton sometimes, but you know, simple isn't stupid either. And simple isn't mean spirited. And it's great how he's just like, if you can bring any happiness to my friend's life, that makes me happy. And you have just completely misjudged me here. I think he falls in, in a funny middle place because in the conversation, he does seem to think that like, uh, cause I, the exact quote was something along the lines of like, she is exactly the kind of person to bring meaning to your sorry existence. <laughs> if you're smart enough to take advantage of it, which my response is like, it is no woman's job to bring meaning to any man's existence. First of all, sit fucking down. Um, but also, you know, he was, he was right in just completely shutting him down. And then of course, later Troy is like, I already have a job. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, it's sort of like the, I probably apply the 1990 filter, you know? <laughs> yeah. I will say, I think it's not a bad episode by any stretch. And I mean, most of series three, you could say the same about, there's not a lot of bad in this. The creepiness of, they they went too overboard on how creepy he is i think at points it just it, it it's uncomfortable what's funny is that his his sexual ethics are not shown to be wrong but the way he approaches his profession essentially is so deeply deeply dishonest that it makes you wonder about the whole person about everything yeah. else it yeah, is I, mean, I do find him incredibly creepy but also believable because i have met so many men exactly like that in my life oh yeah that are just that deeply like charismatic and charming and uh you know from all appearances have really good intentions and are super honest but like in their head, they are thinking about how they're going to stab you in the fucking knee. Like I have met so many men exactly like that, especially in positions of power. Um, it's just like, you're right. It is creepy and I don't like it, but it's also very, very believable for me. See, to me, that's almost like, and I think a lot of episodes of this very show would have written him that way that he was looking to for the next stab in the back or the next conquest. What I think is interesting and, and almost more insidious because people are also like this. I think he was sincere with everything that he said to Troy um, and that he really did admire her and that in his moments with her, he was feeling emotional and truthful, but he, it just didn't even occur to him that that should affect any other aspect of his life, which is why he was just ultimately too shallow to really mean anything to her in the end. Or, and I, sorry, I believe people have these, you know, these moments of sincerity and clarity and still learn nothing from them. Right. Well, and because when he fires back at her, like, you know, do you announce to every ship that you encounter that, that you're empathic? Like you're dealing with life and death. I'm just doing commerce. Like, I don't, I don't think he's a hundred percent on, but like, there's not nothing there. Yeah. Right. 
these like, you know, the, the stakes that I'm dealing with are commerce. The stakes that you're dealing with are like war and life and death. So maybe calm the fuck down when you're criticizing me. <laughs> yeah, no, he's completely in the wrong. Um, I just think it's interesting that it's almost like Bruce Maddox where the episode has texture because the things he does to him make sense. Right. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, I think those are, those are always the best villains, right? The ones where you, you truly like, there's a piece of you that like, Oh man, I can kind of, I can kind of see how they got there. Uh, like I don't like what they're doing and they're wrong for doing it, but I at least kind of get it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you know, it's, Sorry, I was going to say, it comes, comes back to what I was saying before about sort of the the moral sort of quandaries and it's not it not being all black and white. Like, you can sort of, yeah. where do you draw the line between that was wrong but necessary versus, no, no you're in the wrong at this point. Well, and I, I think what's important about the episode working is we were just talking about how Troy gets traumatized all the time. Troy just has a nice fling in this episode and she's fine. She doesn't get assaulted. She doesn't get victimized. And it's like, Hey, you know, that was, that was just a pleasant little, like in her whole conversation of it with Dr. Crusher, you know, two women in their thirties talking about sexuality in a way that's not designed to titillate the male audience Mm -hmm. in a traditional way. It's just, a very refreshing, you know, sometimes TNG just does these day in the life episodes and they'll just bring in these enlightened ideas. It's just like, huh, all right. Yeah. Is, is this the episode when uh, she's like, who needs rational when your toes curl up? Yes, yes, that's the okay. conversation. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, which I'm like, yeah, I get it. <laughs> I too have been there. <laughs> well, and then from a world building perspective, this episode is actually enormously important like if if episodes had to cite their sources they would all cite this because it introduces the idea that the milky way is divided into alpha beta delta and gamma quadrants Mm -hmm. which is promptly so foundational that it becomes a key part of star trek 6 which has not been produced yet but is set 80 years in the past um and it just becomes fundamental to how they organize the sister shows Deep Space Nine and Voyager and and just very much continues to resonate. It sets up a very delightful episode of Voyager. Shh. <laughs> <laughs> so I won't get to Voyager for like another year and a half. I'm gonna also go up by then, let's be honest. I will say nothing more. <laughs> um, okay. Well, I think four more left for this block. We'll try and sort of push through them a little. Sure. <laughs> Overwhelming a little. Uh, but- Vengeance Factor, uh, which I liked, I think, more than Sam did. I think it's a decent little run-and-jump action episode with some good dialogue, good dialogue for Wesley, which you can't take for granted, and then has sort of a nice tragic Shakespeare ending for Riker and the uh, Woman of the Week, who's also the Monster of the Week, and it's just always fun when that happens. Yeah, and this is, you know, the, the hashtag good guy Riker. Uh, where he's like, yes, I really want to bone, but only if you're really into boning too. Like he's asking questions. It's like, that is so like, that is such, that's such a good way to model an interaction (laughs) because like, and of course this is all before we know anything about who this person actually is. Oh Um, man, I've got to find that, that meme where it's like, this couple comes up to you and asks if you want to swing and you're like, 
maybe. And I got to, I got to put a Riker and Troy picture yeah. in there. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, I, I love that. And that's one of the things that I'm like, I'm always a little suspicious of guys that are super horny the way that Riker <laughs> often is. But the fact that he was just like so deeply into like, no, I only want to do this if you are equally as into it. And I'm like, all right, man, you're one of the good ones. I like that. Gotcha. Yeah. Everything you're saying about how good this episode is, is exactly the reason why matter of perspective sucks. I notice. <laughs> uh, yeah. I don't know. They got to phaser some punk hair metal space pirates. Like it, Ain't nothing wrong with that. No, I mean, it's a fine enough episode. I think it, it, it's one of the sort of more middling episodes of season three, but it's, yeah. it's not, it does nothing wrong with it. Yeah, it's, it's you know, it's all, all is fine. It's got some good themes. It's pretty much self-contained. Let's move on. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the Defector, which is one of the rare episodes in this stage of the show to be a direct sequel to another episode, in this case, The Enemy, although that's not really quite apparent until the end. Mm-hmm. So uh, we get kind of a what becomes a classic Ron Moore setup where uh, two enemy ships appear to be fighting and the heroes swoop in to save one of them. And it turns out there's more going on than meets the eye particularly because it's Romulans. But when they actually carve through all the layers of deception, you get this highly principled military officer of the quote-unquote enemy who's willing to sacrifice everything, his own life, his own happiness, in order to avert, once again, mutually assured destruction. Yeah, that's... And I really love episodes especially in tng because you know ds9 is obviously a little bit more like gray uh and does a lot better job of nuance in tng it's basically always like the federation are the good guys the enterprise are the good guys of the good guys captain picard is the good guy of the good guys and we're not like ever supposed to generally speaking we're not really supposed to understand them as capable of doing anything wrong except by mistake and when um in, in this episode where he's like you know all you can think about is how you can take apart my ship and find my secrets like you're such a short-sighted people and i just i love that little of like we can we can criticize uh the heroes a little bit and understand that they're not perfect and like every opportunity that i have to to celebrate that i love uh so yeah i, I love that that moment it's also a nice call back to the um, balance of terror which had sort of a more righteous uh romulan culture depicted where they, they destroyed their ship and you know rather than be taken mm-hmm. and i think that would be widely understood especially a little bit closer to the end of world war ii as sort of an admirable thing to do yeah and it actually gets called back both in the enemy and in in this episode um, but just that really though, like every so often season three, just like, and I guess season two really with, with Q who does this, but every so often season three, just like hauls off and gives you a mini movie, like the score and the effects and the scope of the story, you know, we literally start with Shakespeare, right. And a, a disguised cameo from Patrick Stewart in the holodeck and 
then we're ending with him taking that same lesson from Henry V or whatever it was. I don't care about the Kings. I'm not in the UK. Right. Um, uh, and, but applying it to where it's relevant. And, and of course, you know, Andreas Katsoulis getting to really just tear up the scenery even more as Tomalak. And they just give these amazing speeches at each other. And in the end, nothing happens. Not a shot is fired, but it, feels like something happened yeah that's a really good way to put that yeah no absolutely <laughs> i think what you're saying as well like about about it sort of being like a mini film or something i've noticed a lot with tangent the amount of episodes and stories where like there's so, there's so many stories particularly in season three that very easily could be feature films or even like a couple of feature films and yes yeah. they, they squeeze it into this sort of 45 50 minute long episode and i mean and and we've talked about we've talked about the the production value how it's not always just like physically or financially there but i think they just decided that we're always going to act like we're a 50 million dollar feature film even when we're not and we'll we'll let that that carry us we'll let that coast us like this is not a this is not a cheesy show and it's because of the acting, quite frankly. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And the presentation. So, yeah. yeah. Um, um, because we've got two more left. Um, so we'll try, try and go. Okay. Those so, uh, we'll after, the, uh, after the high ground, and we'll do the other half. Sure, sure. Uh, so we got the hunted, which has my personal favorite one-off Star Trek villain. Uh, also, Ensign Boimler's favorite, uh, Roga Danar, <laughs> yeah. uh, who just goes full diehard on the Enterprise, and he's actually right all along. And you just love to see it. Yep. Uh, yeah, this is a great. This is. I, I mean, I, I mean, again, it comes to what I've said a couple of times already about this sort of not being black and white. Aspect. Well, it's. Oh, I said diehard, but politically it's more like Rambo, meaning the first Rambo, where it's a commentary on like we had this Vietnam War and we just <laughs> broke all these men and we acted like we were breaking toys. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which uh, James Com- J- James Cromwell, God bless him. Mm. Uh, very, very good in this episode. Well, we, we kind of ran out of time, but the guest star in the last episode we're also going to see again. <laughs> just really they're really building a reliable stable of of faces i think and because there's different aliens every week they get to reuse them even when they're even when they die right right but yeah for all that i don't know if there's so much to say like just watch the high ground it's really good we kind of covered it (laughs) i i I oh, I'm, oh, sorry. I meant I meant watch the hunted. Watch the hunted. It's really good. Okay. Yeah, I was gonna. Uh, I have. The, I have the feelings about the high ground. Yeah, the high the high ground is is a little bit less good. A, a little bit more uneven. A little more you can see the seams. I think it's still still compelling, and it's interesting that it like, apparently aired right after the hunted because they have sort of similar antagonists on the surface. But then ethically, in, in what they do is very different. Yeah. Uh, again, I love the high ground because we get uh, we get a, a critique of the Federation uh, and a critique of Starfleet that um, 
is mostly right. Like I, I, you know, not to say that I think terrorism is a good thing, but he, but he was here. Here in would say terrorism is a good thing. Well, right. Here in is a terrorist, and she's the first officer of Deep Space Nine. And this is so. Again, we get these prototypes of these themes that you know, we're never going to see this planet again. We never see these people again. But the issues remain, and the writers revisit them with more and more experience and nuance every time. Well, and he he very explicitly says like the difference between who gets called a freedom fighter and who gets called a terrorist is the difference between who wins and who loses you know like that's what it is and that's just such a powerfully true commentary on propaganda and the way that history is written uh to you know demonize certain people and uh and and canonize others uh i i just he was so good in that role and like you know obviously i don't know enough about the history of that planet to you know to say like you know whether what what he was doing was was right or not well like, um, he but, compares himself to george washington and it's it's you know you always have to be responsible with history because on the one hand you know george washington did not blow up large amounts of children on purpose but on the other hand this guy didn't own any slaves right exactly um and so it's it's just it's it's interesting in that, like, I, I wish they explored that more on TNG. Like, they get into it a little bit in DS9 with the Maquis. Um, but, like, you know, I, I think the TNG writers very much wanted us to, like, unquestioningly dislike that guy and what he's doing and what he stands for. Um, but, like, his critique of the Federation was also not wrong. Like... You know, it's not meant to be. Um, well, right. But but we're still supposed to think he's a bad guy and that like he's spouting bullshit, right? Um, I, I don't know. Like, I think that Crusher and Picard are presenting, I think that the episode presents their perspectives on this, this guy, this Finn or whatever, as both having a lot of merit. And I do think we're supposed to see him as sort of like a potentially a tainted hero. Um, like I, I, I was mentioning this after Sam's live tweet. Like, it basically this episode is. It it would have been so trivial, and they would have gotten such a pat on the back for basically making this episode into the Israel is good episode, uh, and they very much do not do that. And they maybe say, "Hey, this guy is has has crossed the line. He's stared into the abyss. His tactics are just a little bit unacceptable." But they don't, you know, there are worse villains in the Marvel Cinematic Universe that have essentially the same background and that are portrayed with less sympathy. You see, I don't know. I, I never got the sense that we were supposed to take uh, Dr. Crusher sympathizing with him seriously because Picard just so easily dismisses and, and hand waves it away. Like, like, oh, this is Stockholm Syndrome. You know, nothing that you're saying has any validity. Like, I feel like he just very hand waved away what she was saying uh, as if it was just the most ridiculous thing. And uh, yeah, I, I, I didn't get the sense that we were supposed to take what Crusher was saying seriously, even though I think like we should. Well, I mean, that's, we're getting so far. <laughs> yeah, that's true. There. <laughs> <laughs> but, but so, so like intrinsically then this episode has value that there are these, these different perspectives and overall, then I have to say that including this episode and also all of DS9 and also even all of Voyager when you consider the Maquis, how incredibly blessed we are that this artifact of work of 
critiquing American imperialism survived before 9-11. Because after 9-11 and to this day, this is they're punching into territory that you can't say on TV. Right. Yeah. Even at the time, though, I mean, like, obviously it was more specifically because of the one particular line, but that the episode wasn't aired over here for decades. Mm-hmm. Because, and in the UK. More, partly because of the Irish reunification line, but, but for those reasons also. like it, 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 It's an episode that has to be made in the right circumstances to work. I think yes. it's, we're very lucky that broadly speaking it was. Like, I think there's a lot of warts on this episode, but I again think that like, this is just jumping into the buzzsaw of public opinion in 1990. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like you were not supposed to say this. That, that was the first half of the season three podcast reviews thingy that we do and I still don't really know what to call it (laughs) (laughs) Kelly is there anything you want to plug any projects that you work on or just your Twitter or anything like that Sure. I'm at Callie Gets It on Twitter, and I make a podcast called Queer Splaining, which is not a Star Trek podcast, although <laughs> I do talk about Star Trek on it sometimes, um, which is just a, uh, a an LGBTQ uh, storytelling show where I, uh, you know, find somebody who is uh, doing cool activism work or somebody who has like a really important, powerful uh, personal story. And I give them a platform to tell that story in a way that it will not be uh, exploited or objectified in the way that queer and trans narratives often are in uh in the media so yeah queer storytelling if you're into that sort of thing queer splitting is the place uh you uh, can any, anywhere podcasts are sorry. uh yeah this episode is going out on the weekend of the 18th of december which means there's just over a week until the charity live stream that we're doing um on the 28th of december that'll be from midday uh uk time until midnight uk time i'm going to be live streaming star trek online uh raising money for diabetes uk um, people who follow me on Twitter will know that I was diagnosed diabetic recently, um, so it's something I, I, I find sort of quite important. So I thought I'd do an event, use the platform a bit. Um, we already smashed the donation goal, so thank you to everyone who's, who's sort of retweeted it and gotten the word out and donated. I haven't obviously increased that goal now, but absolutely like insane levels already. But yeah, 28th of December, midday UK time midnight uk time and until then and until the next episode i've been sam i've been patrick and and can you join it oh am i supposed to join in that okay <laughs> yeah sorry <laughs> and sam. i have been and i and i have been not paying enough attention <laughs> and that's been i've never seen thank you for listening <laughs> I've Never Seen is brought to you by our followers over on Patreon, including Rob Birch, Joshua DeVries, Matthew Wolf-Simon, Andrew McGray, and Jane Kay.